Welcome back to the Bad Calvinist Podcast, where we all get a chance to learn how to be bad Calvinists. I'm your host today, Gray Marshall, and today we're bringing you along with us on the Bad Calvinist Pulpit Tour. Over the last two weeks, Jason, Joel, and I switched pulpits here in Southern Ohio, and we all preached on the same text, Genesis 22, the almost sacrifice of Isaac. This Sunday, we will be recording a podcast at First Presbyterian Church in Chillicothe at 6.30 p.m. You're all invited to join us. And in preparation for this podcast, we were releasing the sermons that we all preached online so that you may have the experience our congregations did. So without further ado, I now present to you my sermon on Genesis 22 entitled, The Terrible Weight, preached at Circleville Presbyterian Church. I have this uh, memory from my childhood. I think I was about 10 years old, and my... I remember dangling this piece of paper that I had in my hand. It was a schoolwork paper over a lit candle. The rest of the family was at the dinner table. I had gotten up from my seat and was playing a game of chicken with the paper and the candle, moving it up and down as my parents told me to stop and come back to the table and eat. I was being playful in the way only a 10-year-old snot-nosed kid can be, making sounds as the paper got closer to the flame. I'm going to do it. Woo! I'm going to do it. Goading my parents to intervene. And guess what happened to the piece of paper? The paper caught on fire. And I think my eyes opened the widest they had ever been up to that point in my life. And intervention came very quickly at that point. (laughs) The fire was put out. I received a severe talking to. They were able to save half the paper. Now, I had not intended to burn the paper, but there it was, burned in half. And sometimes when you play chicken, somebody gets hurt, right? Or something gets hurt. Now, this is my first reading of the Binding of Isaac story from Genesis chapter 22. This terrible, stomach-turning masterpiece. Abraham is playing a game of chicken with God with much more at stake than a 10-year-old schoolwork paper. What's dangling over the fire is Abraham's son, Isaac, through whom the reader believes God will fulfill God's promises. Scholar Jack Miles is correct to point out, though, that nowhere in the text does Abraham actually agree with God's request to sacrifice Isaac. Did you notice that in the story? That God orders it, yet Abraham never says, oh yeah, Lord, let's get right on that. Instead, old Abe simply gets up, 
starts going through the terrible motions as if to say, all right, God, I'm getting ready to leave to sacrifice my son, just like you asked. Do you really want me to go through with this? I'm walking out the door. You can stop me at any time. Now, you may notice that the narrator never gives us the sense of Abraham's inner life during the story. Nowhere are we told how Abraham is feeling or what he is thinking. As philosopher Kierkegaard observed, it is as if Abraham is a mindless sleepwalker or a robot going about his duty with an appalling economy of movements towards disaster. So we as the reader are left to guess what Abraham was thinking throughout this terrible chapter. Jack Miles points out a couple of clues from the text that might help us get at Abraham's intentions. So after a three-day journey to the mountain, right, Abraham orders the servants who came to stay with, who came, came with him to stay behind as he and Isaac ascend to the mountaintop. Abraham says, the boy and I will go up there, we will worship, and we will return. Now, at first, when you read the story, you think, oh, okay, well, uh, he's clearly just lying to the servants. He doesn't want the servants to know what he's about to do. Maybe the servants were going to stop him, right, if he, if he had suggested he was going to do that. Maybe trying to shield the servants from this terrible thing that is about to happen. But Jack Miles suggests that perhaps Abraham is actually talking past his servants and really speaking to God. We will return, won't we, God? The same goes for Abraham's conversation with Isaac as they climb the mountain. Isaac asked the lamb, asks about the lamb for sacrifice. Where is the lamb, Dad? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb, or God will see to the sheep. Another translation. Once again, we're left to wonder if Abraham is simply lying to Isaac, or is he playing chicken with God here, challenging him in this subtle way. God will do the right thing, won't you, God? Goading God even as he follows through with this horrible command. Now, why would Abraham believe that God was not going to follow through on the command? If you look at Genesis... You look at all the previous chapters that we see Abraham, time and time again, Abraham is proven that he isn't the most reliable or trustworthy of followers. His actions reveal that he doesn't always trust in God's ability to act. Think about this. Before we arrive at this moment in the mountain, 
Abraham does some crazy stuff. First, he tries to give his wife Sarah away twice, both times to save his own life from Pharaoh and King Abelamech, right? To save his own side. So he tells these people, oh, this, she's my sister. Don't kill me and take her as your wife. This is my sister. Abraham goes also through Sarah's plan to conceive a child with his servant Hagar instead of waiting for God to give them a son like he promised. So through all of Abraham's mistakes, acts of distrust, God continues time and time again to reaffirm the covenant God has with Abraham. And maybe at some point, this is, this is where I get it. At some point, Abraham, maybe just as he was about to climb this mountain, or maybe even before, Abraham had a realization. I have messed up a lot. I mean, a lot. And every time, God has shown up and got me out of this mess. Huh. That makes me think. That if all of a sudden now he's asking me to sacrifice my son, maybe God isn't going to go through with it. Maybe God is just testing me here and I've got to go through these terrible motions. Because he came through all the other times, right? It's an interesting thought. God was totally invested. He had all of God's eggs in the Abraham basket. And this might be why Abraham doesn't question the terrible command to sacrifice Isaac. And it it is out of character. Y'all might remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember that section of Genesis? Abraham straight up says, What are you doing, God? You can't kill all these people. What if there are some good people there? Abraham challenges God. And here in this story, Abraham never challenges God once. And I think maybe the reason Abraham doesn't, maybe the reason that he goes about it in such a robotic way and why he lets on to his servants that Isaac will return is that he doesn't believe at this point God would actually let him follow through with the command. In a way, Abraham is calling God's bluff. He knew how committed the Lord was to him, and not even this incomprehensible command would stop God's commitment to Abraham. As Walter Brueggemann states, in the end, our narrative is perhaps not about Abraham being found faithful. It is about God being found faithful. Now, I don't know what to do with this reading of the text. I have no clue. I don't think it's helpful, I'm going to be honest with you, or edifying to you to suggest that you all start playing chicken with God. The results will most likely not be pretty. 
It could be pretty, pretty traumatic for all those parties involved. Now, even if Abraham didn't believe that God would let him follow through with this, Abraham still carried on with the motions, the terrible motions of killing his son, up to the point of drawing his knife as his son lay bound to a pile of wood. This is trauma. Trauma you don't forget. This is trauma that you can't just get over no matter how you rationalize it or figure out what God was intending. And I suspect that this experience wrecked Abraham. Even if he believed that God wasn't going to actually have him do it. In her book, Ellen Davis called Getting Involved with God, Rediscovering the Old Testament, which is a book I highly recommend you look at in your Old Testament studies. It's very readable, uh, and uh, it's called Getting Involved with God by Ellen Davis. In uh, her book, she tells a story about the famous Dutch artist Rembrandt. I have given you all uh, a little handout today. Do you all have it? Hand, hold it up. You got it? All right. Okay. Today, this is your art history lesson for today. Get excited. So, the one that's on the left-hand side, the one that is clearly the painting, is titled, The Sacrifice of Isaac. Rembrandt was doing this uh, a series on the Old Testament, and these were massive canvases. This was six foot by four foot canvas. This is a massive piece of art. And it has all the drama that you would expect in a massive piece of art like this. Uh, Rembrandt was 29 years old, a very young man, when he painted this first painting on the left. Um, And like I said, it's full of drama. If Charlton Heston was doing a movie based on the sacrifice of Isaac, I suspect this is kind of how Charlton Heston would have framed it. What do you notice about this painting? What sticks out to you? Just call it out. I don't care. You see no ram. Yep, there's no ram there. And I don't know if the ram is supposed to be in the background somewhere here. That I don't. My copy's not great, but I don't believe there is. What else do you notice? Yeah, the knife. Do you notice how the angel is coming in, and there's almost seemingly a forceful grab, as if the angel's grabbing the hand forcefully, because the knife was coming was was starting to already be moved. Right? Very dramatic. Yeah, it looks like she's saying, what's the matter with you? Like, that, like this other hand's about to slap his face? <laughs> right? Yeah, the angel's coming in pretty fierce. Um, Abraham looks pretty intent on doing it. What do you notice about Isaac? The whiteness of the flesh there, the, almost like the brightness of the sun is coming off of Isaac's chest. There's almost this purity there that exists does not seem to be struggling, right? He's bound, 
He's there, doesn't seem to be struggling. Clearly, Abraham got him into that pose, and he's not even fighting it. This is, as I said, the work of a young man. The year that he turned 29, that he painted this one on the right, Rembrandt was married. And through this marriage, he had children, three of which died in their childhood. The last one that they had, their fourth child, was a son. Rembrandt's wife gave birth to that that son, uh, and Rembrandt's wife died after childbirth. That son was the only son that lived to adulthood. Twenty years later, Rembrandt returned to the same topic. But when he returned, he was a very different person. Now a single father of an only son. This one on the right is what he created 20 years after the one on the left, after Rembrandt had gone through the trauma of loss. Rembrandt entitled the one on the right, this etching, the sacrifice of Abraham. What do you notice about this etching that's different from the one on the left? Isaac is not bound. You notice that? We can't really tell with his hands but certainly he seems to not be bound like he is in this first one. Um, And he's in a very different position. Yes, absolutely. And you'll notice that Abraham, instead of covering his mouth area in the first one, in this one, Abraham is covering his eyes as if to try to shield him from the horror that is about to happen. Other things you notice from this one that are different. That is a very astute observation. Do you notice that Abraham is right-handed in the first one? His sheath is on his right-hand side. On the etching, his sheath is also on the right-hand side, yet strangely, he is holding the knife in his left hand. Now, what that tells me is that Rembrandt is suggesting that maybe Abraham wasn't going to go through with it, that this was not his dominant hand. He was not even, he was just going through the motions, but he was not actually going to carry through with this action because the hand, his knife is in the wrong hand. What do you notice about the angel? Very different, right? Instead of a grab, what we have here is an embrace. And Abraham's face is one of terror. Seemingly next close to tears, if not already crying, and the angel is coming from behind and embracing Abraham. Notice the Abra- you notice that the angel's hand 
is holding the arm of Abraham there that's holding the eyes of Isaac. This is a very different reading of this story. And it suggests that instead of Isaac being the one who was sacrificed, who was going to be sacrificed on that, I, that mountain, it was actually Abraham. Abraham who lost something in this story. Abraham who experienced something unspeakable. After the angel stops Abraham, God provides a lamb to sacrifice. And for the seventh and final time, Abraham is blessed. God says, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand in the seashore. The promise is now secure. There will be no more tests. But here's the deal. It came at a cost for Abraham. This story is essentially, while Abraham does appear in next chapters, this is essentially the end of Abraham's story. It is Isaac's time now. Abraham, in the end, actually sacrificed himself on that mountain. He sacrificed himself by going through those terrible motions so that Isaac may have new life. And maybe that is the test from God. Was Abraham willing to give it all, himself, his own future, his own life in a matter of speaking? Was he willing to end his story so that God could begin a new story with Isaac? Perhaps that is our test as well. What is the church of 2019 sacrificing to ensure that it has a future beyond our own deaths? What part of ourselves do we need to give up so that the church may experience new life? Too often we are stubborn. Too often we are selfish. We want the promises and the rewards for ourselves. Instead of investing in a future beyond our own lives. Yesterday, our nation experienced uh, two mass shootings. One in El Paso and one in Dayton last night. The one in El Paso, the young man, 21 years old, was inspired by white supremacy, white nationalism, white supremacy. A man who, a young man who felt like he had no future, no hope, that there was not enough love to go around. We as a church 
need to start doing the hard work. To lay the foundations that fight our society's temptation towards exceptionalism, nationalism, racism. Anything that denies the humanity of others, that rejects God's image in the face of our neighbor. Because too long, have too many parents had to sacrifice their children at the altar of that nonsense. The altar of hate and sickness and fear. What are we willing to give up now so that those who follow us our children and our children's children, that they have a future. How can we end our stories right so that others who follow us may have new life? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.